Welcome to the Bulgarian History Podcast, Episode 91, Palace Intrigue. Now, first, I want to thank our new patron, AJ Myers, as well as Harshoth JR and Jan Heinrichs for both making donations. Big thanks to all of you and to all the recent fans I've been meeting. I've been getting more and more emails from you all telling me that you're visiting Sofia, and I've been giving you tours and meeting up for dinner and all this kind of stuff. It has really made my early summer so special, and I love doing it every single time. So if you're ever visiting, get in touch. And I'll be in the U.S. in October. I'm finalizing some of my plans and things. So I'm hoping to maybe meet up with a few people there if you're around. So stay tuned for that. All right, last time. We saw the power of the Sultan's decline even more as Osman II was murdered by the Janissaries after trying to curtail their power and build a new Anatolian army. And then they later also murdered a Grand Vizier that they didn't like. So the Janissaries are really asserting their power and control just at the same time they're becoming a less effective fighting force. Now all of this sparked off the Abaza Rebellion in Anatolia where a local governor took up the case of young Osman and fought the Janissaries and the central government for years over it. Mustafa then briefly reigned before being forced into retirement by the young and bloodthirsty Murad IV who began an attempt to finally tackle the corruption that was tearing the state apart. But in Wallachia and Moldavia, offices were still being sold, even as the Ottomans managed to beat back the Poles and gain full control of Moldavia. All the while, the Thirty Years' War still raged across Europe, basically keeping them busy. The Safavid invasion went as well as Ottoman attempts to push them back, repeatedly failed as that war entered its 10th year. Now, at the end of the last episode, I alluded to an Ottoman governor going rogue in a war against Poland, and well, here we are. In 1633, Mehmet Abazi, the Ottoman governor of the Bulgarian province and city of Silistra on the Danube, gathered his Ottoman troops alongside Wallachian, Moldavian, and Tatars to go attack Poland. Now, the year before, Poland had faced a sudden attack from Russia, sudden because it violated a previously agreed armistice. Abazi clearly saw an opportunity to strike at Poland while it was weak. But how was he allowed to do this? Did Sultan Mehmed know about it? Well, the last Polish-Ottoman war had wrapped up about 12 years previously, and while neither side made territorial gains, the Poles were barred from influence in Moldavia as a result of the peace. In other words, the Ottomans didn't have much to gain here, but they did have plenty to lose, not to mention the fact that they were still locked in a war against the Safavids that was not exactly going well. That said, we don't know for sure whether Mehmed knew about his actions. While it's possible the Sultan was aware of what his governor was up to, I find it more likely that Abazi acted on his own, especially seeing how hard it's been for the central Ottoman state to control its governors recently. 
We can sort of presume he had that classic ask for forgiveness rather than permission kind of mentality. Assuming the war would go well, he'd have some glory, and well, what was Sultan Mehmed going to do about it? So in June of 1633, a small contingent of Tatars raided into Polish territory, taking loot and slaves. Once they were back in Ottoman Moldavia and thought they were safe, a Polish cavalry force ambushed them, killing many and retaking all of the loot. It wasn't until late September that Abazi himself and his force was ready to begin the march up to Poland. About a month later, he was near the fortress of Kotyn when he learned that the Commonwealth Army, again, remember Poland and the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, it's all the same state, it's just easier to say Poland. The Commonwealth Army, well, he found out that they were well fortified on their side of the border. In other words, despite the fact that he thought Poland was very weak and this was the perfect time to attack, they were prepared for him. Still, he attacked as soon as he could, but made little progress and had to retreat, possibly because he thought Cossack reinforcements were coming for the Poles, or that the Sultan had learned of his scheme and, well, he was in big trouble. Meanwhile, off in the east, 1633 saw the Georgian king rise up against the Safavids by taking a fugitive governor of Georgia hostage bringing that territory suddenly back into play in the fighting between the Ottomans and the Safavids. Well, at least that's how it seemed for a few months, because within a year the Safavids had managed to reassert control, and ultimately this Georgian uprising didn't change the situation terribly much. Still, perhaps feeling that the events in Georgia meant that the Safavid war was going well, or that he had no choice now that his governor had started a war, by 1634, the Sultan decided to kind of fully commit his forces to the Polish war and began preparing an army. However, once again, he wasn't really in charge of the situation as his Tatar vassals went ahead and invaded Russia. Wait, what? Yes, remember the Poles were fighting the Russians and all of a sudden these Ottoman vassals, instead of attacking Poland, attacked the country that was attacking Poland. So... Yeah, what's going on here? Well, apparently the Poles were paying the Tatars to attack Russia, who again they were at war with, despite the fact that the Tatars were also fighting Poland with the Ottomans. It seems that, you know, the, the Tatars were Ottoman vassals and they were willing to take a bribe to help somebody out. Along with Polish attacks, these events devastated southern Russia. They obviously weren't expecting to be attacked by the Tatars at this point. Polish victories elsewhere led the Russians to sue for peace by June of that year, allowing the Poles to then move their full forces towards the Ottomans by September. So yeah, that quick and easy war against Poland is not looking great. The whole idea of attacking the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth was that, well, they're embroiled in a war against Russia, so they'll be an easy target. So, Sultan Mehmed had a choice engage in a two-front war against the Safavids and the Poles, or seek peace in one of them. Not that surprisingly, he did choose the latter, blaming Abazi for everything and having the governor hung. This seemed to be enough for Poland to bring peace uh, without any real changes to the overall situation. The Poles, yeah, they may have had a potential advantage as things had changed, but 
they were still just getting out of a war with Russia, and they weren't interested in engaging in a protracted fight against the Ottomans. Once the situation on the European front was secure, the Sultan could again focus entirely on the Safavids. In 1635, he decided to lead the army personally. They made it into Safavid territory, taking the city of Revan and plundering Tabriz. You can find a map of the campaign on the website. The link is in the episode description, as always. Sultan Murad returned a conquering hero. However, by early in the next year, the Safavids had retaken the territory and defeated the Ottoman army, reversing all of the Sultan's gains. Now, at this point, the Safavid War went quiet for several years. In the meantime, we can catch up a bit on what's been happening in Europe. We're now 18 years into the Thirty Years' War, and it shifted from a Protestant-Catholic conflict into a massive European war in which the various powers employ mercenary armies to fight in a broader Habsburg-French rivalry, as France and Sweden were both also dragged into the conflict. Then, in 1637, the man who set the entire conflict off by forcing all of his domains to adopt Roman Catholicism, Emperor Ferdinand II, died at age 58. His 19-year-old son became Emperor Ferdinand III, but he faced an enormous challenge in navigating this ever-growing conflict. Meanwhile, in Wallachia and Moldavia, things were getting interesting. A man named Vasily Lupu became the Voivoda of Moldavia in 1634 by, you guessed it, bribing everyone who needed to be bribed. Okay, he, he also led a rebellion against the previous Voivoda with Wallachian and Ottoman backing, uh, as well as by helping the governor who attacked Poland. So he also made some friends that way. But, you know, he got into power the way he got into power. The good news was that he was one of the wealthiest Christians in the East. He was actually possibly born near Razgrad in Bulgaria, so his background is a bit interesting. But the point is he was wealthy, and that meant he could afford to pay the bribes. And instead of like most other voivodas who had to make those bribes and then heavily tax the population in order to recoup those losses, he didn't need to do that. And so he... So yeah, he, he was in a much more advantageous position, and this really meant good things for Moldavia. They probably weren't going to be subject to punishing taxes. And his successful attaining of the position also showed a growing trend, a domestic backlash against some of the Greeks, the remember the Phanariots that are gaining some power there. We're going to talk a lot about more of them in the future. Still, he did maintain close ties with the Greek community and the Orthodox Church, even though his appointment was a bit in reaction to them. Though, it seems that the reason for his closeness to the Greeks and the Orthodox Church may have been that he was secretly dreaming of becoming a new Byzantine emperor. Good luck with that. Now, this created an interesting situation. The Voivoda of, Mo of Wallachia, Matea Bessarab, had actually supported him in gaining the throne, and was himself also appointed in part as a, some kind of anti-Greek backlash. And, in addition, both men dreamed of greater independence from the Ottomans for their respective states. And yet, Moldavia, under Vasile Lupu, repeatedly attacked Wallachia in the late 1630s. 
Ultimately, as we've seen time and time again, Wallachia and Moldavia can't seem to assert their independence from the Ottomans alone. Both believe that in order to really do this, they need to create a unified state with them and Transylvania. And so both rulers, despite their similarities, despite the fact that they would seem to be natural allies and were allies, they still fought each other so they could conquer the other state and gain enough power to effectively resist the Ottomans. Now, what were the Ottomans doing in response? I mean, they're, they don't want their vassals fighting amongst themselves. That's not good for the Ottomans. Well, likely due to distractions in the East, they don't seem to have really shown much interest, and they didn't really intervene, which really demonstrates their increasing weakness. I mean, their vassals are fighting each other, and they're not just sort of you know, being ineffective, but they're not even really doing anything, anything that the historians seem worthy of mentioning. Now, another example of this increasing Ottoman weakness came in 1638, when a Venetian fleet destroyed a fleet of Barbary Corsairs operating under Ottoman protection in the Mediterranean. The Corsairs attempted to seek shelter in an Ottoman port, which was then bombarded. Needless to say, Murad was furious and put a blockade on all Venetian trade. But the Empire could do little else in light of the Safavid War, and so they were forced to come to an agreement in which the Venetians paid them a hefty sum for everything to sort of return to normal. Also in 1638, Murad decided to march east once again to finally win this damn war against the Safavids. His more specific aim was to recapture Baghdad, which the Ottomans had tried and failed to take 14 years earlier. It took the Ottoman army 197 days to travel there from Constantinople. Again, showing why fighting the Safavids was so difficult. It was so far away, and really showing why the general borders of the Ottoman Empire at this point are kind of the extent of their borders. You know, once you get to Vienna and Tabriz, you're at two extremes that just take a really long time to get to. And we're still not in the point uh, in kind of military history where armies tend to operate much during the winter. And so you really need to be able to get out there, fight, and get back. And once you get that far away from your sort of central uh, hub and where your soldiers come from, you're obviously then getting closer to where your enemy soldiers are com coming from. And so the kind of balance, the advantage that comes from your relative supply and logistics situations becomes very, very increasingly lopsided. But anyways, getting back to the Safavids, 197 days traveling and, well, no surprise after all this time, the Safavids knew that the Ottomans were coming and so the city of Baghdad was very well defended. It had about 40,000 soldiers and top quality defenses. The Ottomans had about 100,000 men, but you should probably have a sense by now that 100,000 to 40,000 is not a great ratio if you want to take a well-defended city. The Ottomans arrived and began their attack on November 15th. During the following weeks, the Safavids sallied forth from the walls and inflicted great casualties, but the Ottomans stood firm. Finally, after 40 days, the Sultan ordered a general attack and the city was taken. While the defenders were allowed to return home, the population was massacred. Though this was likely because all the Sunni and therefore all the likely pro-Ottoman 
Muslims had been pushed out by the Safavids, and so the entire remaining population of the city were Shia and loyal to the Safavids. So for the Ottomans to take and really keep Baghdad, the population just had to go. Therefore, the massacre seems rather inevitable. Now this loss pushed the Safavids to make peace. The Treaty of Zuhab was signed the next year, 1639, and it essentially reaffirmed the previous peace of Amasya from 1555. The borders it established are, ironically, almost the same borders that exist today between Iran, Iraq, and Turkey, with the Ottomans controlling Iraq in this case, if you want to imagine that. The Sultan now controlled Georgia, Western Armenia, and Mesopotamia, including Baghdad, while the Safavids got everything else. I'll attach a map from 1566, which essentially shows the same borders. What's important here is that while previous treaties functioned more like truces, this fourth Ottoman Safavid war marked a far more lasting peace. And while these borders wouldn't be properly demarcated until the 20th century, some disputes and treaties aside, these essential borders are going to remain for centuries. Murad, for his part, counted the whole thing as a major victory. He was 26 years old and saw himself as a true warrior king. Now, perhaps he could turn his attention back to Europe and involve himself in the Thirty Years' War. Except that a year later, in 1640, he died from cirrhosis of the liver. Ironic for a guy who tried so hard to ban alcohol. He was 27 years old, and although he had 10 sons, they were all dead by the time he drew his last breath. And so his 23-year-old brother Ibrahim became sultan instead. Now it was rumored that he ordered Ibrahim's execution on his deathbed, but it wasn't carried out. But we can't really confirm this either way. If Ibrahim had been killed, it would have been the end of the male Ottoman line. But it was not to be. Still, all was not well. With the tradition of palace executions mostly out of fashion, though Ibrahim's older brother was eventually killed, the new solution to how to kind of prevent rebellions and things applied to Ibrahim was that he, instead of being killed when his brother became sultan, grew up under house arrest in a part of a palace that was known as the cage. As a result, poor Ibrahim grew up in this gilded cage constantly fearing that he might be killed at any time. This gravely affected his mental health, and he was known as the Mad Sultan. In fact, he initially refused to be appointed Sultan, believing that his brother surely was still alive and all this must be a trap, and there's no way this could be happening, and please, please, please don't make him be Sultan. You really have to pity the man. Fortunately for him, though, he was made sultan, and he was initially content to allow his grand vizier to run things, and the grand vizier was content to do that on his behalf, so at least he didn't have so many of the burdens of office. The first two years of his reign were fairly quiet, and then in 1642 he renewed the peace with Austria, indicating that the Ottomans, in fact, did not intend to use peace with the Safavids and the Thirty Years' War to attempt an offense in Europe, even though it seemingly made sense. He also that same year retook the city of Azov from the Cossacks, 
who you'll remember were a constant raiding nuisance. If you're wondering where Azov is, think of the Black Sea, then you've got Crimea and the Sea of Azov kind of separated from it. It's just on the Rostov River. I believe the modern city is Rostov-on-Don, if I'm remembering my geography right. Now that same year, 1642, the Orthodox Church held the Synod of Yassi in the Moldavian city by the same name. Now it's Yash in Romania. The intent of the Synod was to counteract the growing influence of Catholic and Protestant elements into Orthodoxy and to unite the Greek, Slavic, and other, the Wallachian and Moldavian, churches together to really bind Orthodoxy and make it stronger against Catholicism and Protestantism. Now, the exact doctrinal issues at hand aren't really that important, but What's important is that it did succeed in creating much more unity amongst the various Orthodox churches in face of all the religious reforms and changes going on in the rest of Europe. Now, again, this unity is seemingly good for the Orthodox Church, but it did mean that the Orthodox Church was evolving less than churches in Western Europe, kind of further exacerbating the differences between Christian populations within the Ottoman Empire and those outside of it. Now, I tried to find more information about Bulgarians during the Synod. Obviously, they were Orthodox and must have played some role, but I really couldn't find any specifics. Now, during the first four years of his reign, Sultan Ibrahim actually gradually began to take an interest in good governance and worked with his Grand Vizier to implement monetary reforms which stabilized the currency, land reforms which gave the port a better idea of who owned what, he reduced the size of the Janissaries, definitely a smart move, stopped paying state officials who weren't doing anything, also a plus there, and reduced the powers of governors so they couldn't cause as many problems as we've seen many times recently. So all in all, an excellent slate of reforms. Somehow, against all the odds, Ibrahim was making the empire better run instead of engaging in wars of conquest or just being as insane as his name might think you to believe he was. Honestly, I didn't really see it coming. But as we get to the mid-1640s, a few things begin to change. Despite all the good work, Ibrahim did suffer severe headaches and physical weakness resulting from his traumatic childhood in the cage. His mother pushed him to father children as soon as possible because, well, he was at this point the only surviving male heir of the Ottoman dynasty, which it's incredible to believe, was by this point already about 400 years old. That's, you know, by international standards, that's a pretty long dynasty, and obviously we're only in the 17th century. Well, fortunately for him and his mother and the whole Ottoman dynasty, Ibrahim was very good at this, and he had six sons and two daughters in just the first four years of his reign. During this time, as he became increasingly distracted with making babies, his mother gradually took greater control over governmental affairs. Then in 1644, the sultan's mother, a vizier, and some others, managed to get the grand vizier who'd been running things for all of Ibrahim's reign up to this point to resign. And then they killed him a few hours later, which seems like a low blow. I mean, the guy resigned. It didn't quite seem necessary, but they thought it was. The sultanate of women was flexing its power once again, just at a moment when the empire had a pretty good four years. As a result, those quiet years were now giving way to much larger events. 
First, in 1644, George Rakotsi, the Prince of Transylvania, himself intervened in the Thirty Years' War against the Holy Roman Empire, conquering Hungary and actually marching to Vienna with the Swedes aiding him. Before the Ottomans, furious at his vassal, their vassal doing this without their permission, ordered him back. This showed that when the risks seemed light for them, they were pretty uninterested in getting involved in the Thirty Years' War. Even though, I mean, it seems, why not let the guy make some conquests? But despite that, I don't know, it, it seems weird to me, right? Why wouldn't the Ottomans take advantage of this European conflict? Why wouldn't they get involved? But even when they had a chance like this, they were adamant about not getting involved. Still, fortunately for them, the resulting peace did allow Rakotsi and Transylvania to annex some Hungarian territories, so it did actually expand Ottoman-controlled lands ever so slightly. More significantly, and also in 1644, Maltese ships from the Knights of St. John, remember the old Ottoman enemies, captured ships with some very high-status pilgrims on their way to Mecca, possibly even one of Ibrahim's wives and his son. And then... Once they captured the ships, they docked in Venetian-controlled Crete. Ibrahim's advisors encouraged him to go to war with Venice over the slight. There wasn't much he could do against the Knights of St. John because, well, we all remember what happened when the Ottomans attempted to take Malta in 1565. But the Venetians could be punished. Plus, Crete was very large, closer to Ottoman possessions, not very well defended, and essentially Venice's last major overseas territory. Venice itself was weak after fighting in several northern Italian wars and suffering from the plague five to ten years before this. All this together made it a very tempting target. Crete, also called the Kingdom of Candia during this time, had been part of Venice for about 439 years after they very cleverly purchased it from the Latin Empire when it briefly took over Constantinople. Now, though, as a result of these events, it was straight in the Ottoman crosshairs. But the Ottomans didn't want the Cretans to know they were coming. They quickly assembled a five, sorry, not 5,000, a 50,000 man force and a 416 ship armada, which sailed out to the Peloponnesus, where it stopped for a three-week break. The Ottomans tried to trick the Venetians and imply that the actual target of the force was Malta, which successfully fooled them although they had still reinforced Crete the year before. As a result of all this, though, when the Ottomans landed, the locals were totally caught off guard, and they made quick gains, taking the city of Canea after a 56-day siege. I'm very excited. I'll actually be visiting that city on a work retreat this July, so I'm hoping to add some additional photos and information to the website after that because I'll spend a few days uh, in Crete and right by that city. Still, by this point for the Ottomans, everything is going according to plan. However, Christian reinforcements were beginning to arrive, and the Ottoman fleet was looking increasingly in poor shape. Just a month after the Ottomans took Canea, the Venetians moved to retake it, but this failed. Now by this point, the winter was coming, and so the Ottomans left a garrison and returned the bulk of their forces to Constantinople until the campaigning season returned again in spring of 1646. Over these months, the leader of the expedition was actually executed by Ibrahim, while the Venetians frantically attempted to solicit support by, uh, from other European powers in the war. 
However, it's no big surprise that they didn't have any luck, with the Thirty Years' War still raging and nearly every European power involved, and therefore they can't really spare any resources. In 1646, Ottoman reinforcements successfully arrived while a Venetian attack on the Ottoman fleet failed. In other words, the war was actually not going very well for them. Still, they did take on one Aegean island and blockade the Dardanelles for a time. Over the course of 1646, the Ottomans successfully took the fortress of Rutimo and made major advances in Dalmatia, taking fortresses and threatening Zadar and Split. In Crete, over that winter, both sides suffered from plague, but as 1647 dawned, the war was in theory still going well for the Ottomans. True, the blockade of the Dardanelles was causing problems in Constantinople, and the high taxes to pay for the war weren't popular amongst the Ottoman population, but the army was performing admirably. During 1647, they conquered the eastern half of Crete minus one fortress, while their gains were almost entirely reversed in Dalmatia, which meant at this point that front of the war basically settled down to a stalemate. Yet, the Sultan's increasing extravagances and mental instability made him a target, as things got worse. During 1647, his grand vizier, mother, and another attempted to depose him. This failed, and the vizier was executed while the Sultan's mother was exiled from the harem. And that's where we'll finish today. The war in Crete is ostensibly going well, but problems with leadership and the blockade of the Ottoman capital are worrying signs that are causing major stress amongst the Ottomans. Ibrahim has implemented noteworthy reforms that have been quite successful but remains unstable, and therefore faces plots on his life. Europe remains in the grips of the Thirty Years' War, keeping it focused elsewhere. The question in the air is what will happen next. Can Ibrahim find success in his reforms and conquests, or will intrigue get the better of him? This episode was written and produced by me, Eric Halsey. The theme music was written and performed by Teddy Raven. Check out the Bulgarian language version of the podcast at bghistorypodcast.com. I'll catch you guys in the next one.